Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to a very special edition of the Cheats Movement Podcast, a special conversation with my good friend, Aaron Montgomery. Uh, Where do I begin in regards to an introduction in regards to Aaron? Aaron right now, currently, that's what I'll, I'll start with. Currently, he's the Chief Strategy Officer at Mission Lane, which is a financial tech startup that is focused on underserving those that are underbanked, underserved, serving, excuse me, not underserved, serving. Overserved. <laughs> overserved, underserved communities in regards to banking. So, I, I, you know, disproportionately, that's going to affect the wealth gap, that's going to affect African American communities, Latino communities, but generally anyone, uh, any structure and system that is underserved, there is a place for you to check out, and it is Mission Lane. That's what he's doing now. You may have heard of him from Lord knows all kinds of other places in regards to being one of the founders of Carlots. Um, just an amazing, an amazing motivational speaker and, and, and uh, inspiration to, to me personally and many others. He's an entrepreneur. He's a, he's a black entrepreneur in a space that doesn't welcome a lot of black entrepreneurs. He's getting a lot better, but uh, he is, just a really, really special human being, and I'm honored to have him on the show. Aaron, welcome to the Cheats Movement Podcast. Thank you so much, Ma. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Cheats, the Cheats Movement Podcast on Zoom, so we get to right. see <laughs> we get to see exactly what you look like and and and, and how and how every, how you're living there. We get to see the Harvard like the Harvard apparel. I know you're double you're double Harvard, right? You're not just single Harvard. You're double Harvard, right? That's right. H squared, as they call it. That's so right. So the. the <laughs> The 100% level, preparation age. The, the, the <laughs> level, the level of, of <laughs> academic achievement has gone up twofold, at least, by you being on the show. Um, one of the things we are going to talk about, and we're going to talk about it for probably the, the duration, most of this podcast, is that to all the stuff that you've already done, that we'll talk about as well, um, we're going to add author to that list. You have just published your first book. I've got it right here. Awesome. It's called. It doesn't look dog-eared yet, though. Have you read it? I have, I have read <laughs> several fables. Okay. <laughs> several fables and suspend your disbelief. And it is your first book. It is geared towards a younger audience to tell them some of the things that you've been through. And, you know, basically Hove did that so you don't have to go through that type. Right. Up for young folks. That's it. Before we get into that, because we're going to get into that, tell us a little bit about kind of how you got here. Um, basically, being my age, but an OG in the game of entrepreneurship and success. Like, let's like you have been a very successful entrepreneur from day one. So, uh, flex without flexing, and tell us like how did we get here to this point? Because you've had an amazing career. I appreciate that. You know, quite honestly, I've had a lot of good fortune with a lot of people who invested in my life very early, starting with my mother, uh, who raised me by herself and uh, was just a, a tremendous influence. But, you know, when she was growing up, uh, she didn't feel like her family valued education as much as she would. And she felt like not having the education to the extent that she wanted to held her back in some ways. So in many ways, she overemphasized education for me and from a very early age sought out the right after school programs, the summer programs, the early reading programs, the testing, everything behind the magnet schools, but just wanted to make sure that I had every possible advantage 
educationally. And for a single working mom, that wasn't always easy, but she was always willing to step up. If any sacrifice required to further education, she was all in. So because of that, I was able to go to a school uh, from K through, through eight that was highly selective. Uh, I was able to go to a top school uh, when I went to high school. And when I got to that school, even though I didn't do all that well, in fact, they even threatened to expel me, which we can actually have a whole separate story on. I was going to say, I read the book, so I know I, I, I know that you have a story in there about being, uh, you know, not reaching your full potential academically. You said, I think, in the books around the seventh, eighth grade. Yeah, that's right. That was exactly it. I, my, my mom put me in these programs that gave me every opportunity. I appreciate you catching that. Every <laughs> that's right. No, that's all. You wanted to Paris. But she gave me every opportunity. I was in these schools that, you know, they, I mean, they put you on the fast track of everything. You, you, you're in grade school, being taught at a high school level. But I was a slow, I was a late bloomer. And, and I, in many ways, uh, younger Aaron wasn't quite as appreciative of those things, and maybe not as much as, as, as I, I could have been or wish that I could have been. Well, let me and, be clear uh, really quick. Seventh and eighth grade is not a late bloomer. <laughs> no, I mean, I know, what you, I know what you're saying. But you know but, the report cards I'm talking about. Like, we have a very similar history, except you got it together. <laughs> when you, no, when you say late, you got it together. Bro, I didn't get good grades until I got to college. Man, well, so I went through you. all of high school doing exactly what you just said. <laughs> so when you say late bloomer, I'm just saying there's different degrees. That's, right. that's, degrees fair. that's fair. But, you know, it's it's even but hearing what you just said, I don't get to meet a lot of people that turned it around that way. You meet people that stayed on whatever path. But the, I love stories like this, where it's like you, you got there, college, whatever it was. And, and you know what that moment is when the light goes on, whatever that <laughs> It goes from being external to internal, and it can be like a drill drill sergeant helped a lot. (laughs) I don't don't talk about it a lot, but but my parents are great. But I'll tell you, those yellow footprints helped a lot. Go ahead, go ahead. I'm sorry, but that's real. But that's real. I mean, it's like there's something that turns it around. And for me, it was it was honestly it was seeing my mom's disappointment. Like you could almost it almost felt like she was starting to give up. Right, whereas like. You know, you remember the teacher conference it is. It's just like you know, you know all the you know, He's he's bright, but he wasn't paying attention. He spends more time talking to his friends and doing his homework, like all that stuff. And it really felt like I was breaking her down. So I just felt like, what what could happen if I actually tried? I didn't really know how to study, but like if I if I if I tried to, if I figured out what it was, what would happen if I tried? And it turned around. But that's what was interesting about my high school experiences. When it turned around. And I actually got good grades. And by the time I got to ninth grade, I really turned it up. I actually was a 4.0 student. But then I had other things where I wasn't disciplined, right? And my school was a school, it was a huge school in Detroit. 4,000 kids in the school, 1,000 first years, 1,000 freshmen, 1,000 ninth graders, massive building. And, they, and if you didn't make it to your school, it had eight floors and you had to make it from class to class in like four minutes. And if you didn't make it, they'd have hall sweeps where like security guards would just roll through the halls and everybody who was in the hall would just either get detention, get suspended, or depending on how many times you got in det- detention and suspended, you'd get expelled even. And I gotten caught up in my first year of school, like a dozen hall sweeps. I'd missed like 22 days of school due to suspensions my first year of school. 4.0 student, 22 days out. And my last suspension was like a five-day suspension. I was out for a full week. And I told my mom, I said, what if we looked at other schools? Because <laughs> I don't think this right, is going to work right, out. Right, right. <laughs> any, any other mom, I think, you know, would have been reasonable to say, no, you need to get your ass <laughs> up those stairs. Right. But my mom actually said, 
what if there was another school? And she actually took me out to these private schools that at the time were, you know, this is 1992, okay. $14,000, $15,000, $18,000 a year. Dollar amounts we could never afford. But she actually drove her car all around the city, took me to these schools, we toured them, and actually entertained this idea of what if there was another school. And by the grace of God, there was one school in, in Gross Point, Michigan, a suburb of Detroit, that typically had a scholarship program. They'd give two scholarships a year to a kid to go in. But since I was coming in as a sophomore, those two scholarships were already accounted for. So that year they gave me a third scholarship to go into the 10th grade and they held back one for the ninth grade year. So quite literally, this was like a, just a well, life shifting moment. I was able to go to a school that I could never afford. There was not enough financial aid in the world that could have gotten me in that school. And that was the shift. And that for me was like, that, that was the beginning, Mark, honestly. It's like, yeah, you know, went to Harvard and everything, but, but that was actually the moment, that, that time right then. So tell me how, because you said you carried a 4.0 through high school. Yeah. You did get in the, in the book says you got into what nine schools. Most of them offered you yeah. free rides. Right. Um, and then you, d- you decided on Harvard. And, and, and I know this because I know you, but either, I don't know if it was the first time or the second time, I think it was the first time, but you tell me is where you met some peers of yours that to this day are close confidants change your life. I mean, I, I you know, I saw them, uh, when we had the privilege, just full disclosure, I, I went to Aaron's birthday party when, you know, and, and I was able to meet quite a few of the people that were like day one, you know, these are my, my cats that we did this together. They're all doing different things, but tell us a little bit about, because one of the things when you talk about entrepreneurship and you talk about these institutes of high acad- uh, academic achievement, a lot of folks tell you it's not the not the course load, but it's the networking and the friends and the bonds that you make. So tell us a little bit about that experience and how meeting some of your your peers really changed your life. I tell you what, Mark, for, for, for black people, even even before that, it's just it's like just seeing somebody else who looks like you in a world where not a lot of people do. Mm-hmm. And certainly the network is. I remember my first year of college, uh, a friend of mine that I'd grown up with. I've known this is my buddy, Mac. I've known him since I was eight years old and we were roommates in college. And, uh, and he, was a, he was a little bit intimidated on one of our first tests that we had. And he said, um, it took him like two or three weeks uh, before he felt comfortable. I said, well, what, what finally triggered it for you? What, what, why'd you finally get comfortable? He said, I saw a white kid not do as well on a test. And that was the first time I'd seen white folks mess up. <laughs> like, that's like, that was, that's, like that's where we were coming from. Yeah. Like, we, we were always taught, we've got to be this, we've got to be that. But you just automatically assume that your schools aren't as resourced and things. I mean, he was, he was in a different mindset. He had to, like, right. shift, you know. So having a crew that you could open up and have that conversation with right. was a big part of the bonding experience. Because we're all just there. You know, we're in Boston, not Detroit. Like, my, my, you know, my friends come from the place you, just, you suspect, New Orleans, Atlanta, Right. Like they're coming from these chocolate cities all over the world, same backgrounds as us. And then they're in Boston at the world, you know, it's the country's oldest university, you know, it's you know, all the prestige and everything else, deer in the headlights. And then you got these friends that are kind of giving you just some context. So you at least feel comfortable, even though you're not exactly the same. You didn't know them all your life. You feel like you did because they look more like like you or they have experiences more like yours. So you can bond. And then through that, yes, definitely beyond that, it's like you said, it's not the classes, it's not the stuff you learn in the classroom. It's all those experiences that just deepen those bonds. And for me, my crew in both college and in business school, we just have story after story after story just reinforced. And in that short period of time, four years of college, only two years of business school, I can honestly say my closest friends that I still talk to are those people, right? You just, you can't replicate that. 
so then because I do want to get to the to the book and there's so much that you have done, but you leave, you, you know, you said you did Harvard, you did Harvard Business School, but then you you actually had a different path before what we think of like entrepreneurship and, and car lots. You were, I think you, you wanted to do the financial sector first, right? Or, or you had an idea of doing the financial, you had an idea of making money, right? That was your goal. You were yeah. like, yo, I need to, I need to get this brain. <laughs> and, it, and it took you down this path of kind of, I guess in the financial sector, but ultimately led you to entrepreneurship without going like, you can give me the, the cliff notes version, but tell me a little bit about, you, you know, you're out in the world now and you've got to make it shake. You've got the story. I mean, it's like, you know, basically, like, yeah, my mentality was because of where I came from, because of how much it costs and took to get there. Like, I definitely had, I got to get the bag. Like, that's the whole point of being here. <laughs> so, like, I'm, I'm, I'm fully focused on that. But the challenge right. for me was everybody that I knew who had made it. They didn't get there through climbing the ranks to be CEO. They were entrepreneurs. So the people that I knew, when I would read the BE50 or the BE100s, it was restaurant owners, car dealers, you know, which was a big influence for me, you know, people who have built businesses. So being in Detroit, the car dealer thing actually stood out a lot. Like being a car dealer was like, that's how you do it. Like these cats, you know, dealers that I met, they owned airplanes and you know, they had big houses and they were never broke. They always had big TVs. Like that was <laughs> like, that's what you do, you know? So I was never as enamored of the corporate path because I wasn't even considering that. Like that, the, the whole idea of getting a good job and like, you know, working 20 years and getting promoted up was just never even a consideration for me. It wasn't until I got to college that I even considered that as even a path. I was so focused on, I could go sell cars. I could go buy a dealership. I could raise money. I could do this like the entrepreneurship thing was the only thing I thought about. If anything, the hard part was staying true to that after experiencing college when all your friends are saying, yeah, but you go to Goldman Sachs or McKinsey right. or whatever. Yeah, like you can get these you make money too. And make a ton of money, right? Exactly. Exactly. So you wound up doing that for a bit, but 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 flipped it, right? I did that for a bit, man. I flipped both sides actually, you know, and that was actually one of the one of the reasons that I wanted to to write the book was to be able to reach the kids and say, like, let's let's have some real talk about this. Because when when I was a kid, I wanted to sell cars. That's all I wanted to do. And I, I love selling cars. But when I sold cars, you got, you know, maybe it's your parents, maybe it's your teachers, maybe it's your friends saying, You went to Harvard. Why are you selling cars? Right. So then you go do the other thing, you say, Well, I'll do the corporate thing. And then all the people that knew how much you love the car business, like, but I thought you wanted to sell cars. Why are you working in this corporate job? Right, right. You had this paradox of choice where it's like people say, well, you've written your own ticket. You've gone to Harvard. You should be able to do whatever you want. But then when you actually try to do what you want, they all say, like, why are you doing that? Right. So you have to have a lot. It's, it's a lot harder than you think to have options because you have to be you have to because to be an entrepreneur, you have to be sold out for it. You can't be doing it, looking over your shoulder the whole time. You kind of have to burn the boats and say, I'm all in on this thing. And it took me a while to get to that point. Um, in fact, when I, when I met my partner at Carlotts, Mike, uh, the current CEO, um, I was at McKinsey. So here I am, the most prestigious consulting company in the world, one of the best known names. By this point, I had gone to Harvard twice and now I'm at McKinsey. Like, this is the pinnacle. If I make partner there, like, you know, I would actually be bulletproof, do whatever I want. And this dude offers me an opportunity to quit my job and start this thing with him. Like that was a moment for me, like, cause you can't do both. Right. right. You can't be looking over right. saying, oh, you know, this is what I would have made. It's, what, it's like, I left everything, left my salary, left my, left my apartment, left everything. We, we didn't, we didn't pay ourselves those first few years. We didn't, it was, I was out. Like that was, that door was closed and I was all about this and had to totally change my mindset. 
But like that was part of it, man. Like the, the deciding that like and anybody else asked me what I do. I don't even want to talk about where I went to school. I'm like, this is what I do. And if it works out, so be it. If it doesn't work out, then I can still go back and do the corporate thing because yes, I still have those credentials. Right, right. Like, you have to be sold out for it, man. And it took me a while. It took me a while. I mean, I was now we I was 32 years old. Like, right. But old. the interesting part about this is when you when you say that and you speak of that commitment, right? That you have to have in order to to kind of have that mentality to go forward. Yeah. When you speak of it today. You're extremely confident about it. Now you're saying it took you a while to get there. Was your attitude always confident? Because I, I've seen you, um, you know, literally I can joke around with you, but I've seen you in any room that you walk in now. It is, you are a, you are a confident individual. It's not, not like, you know, an arrogant, don't talk to Aaron type thing, but it, it you are, you know who you are and you're, and you know what you've done and know what you're doing. And there's a, there's a kind of a, a pride and, kind of factor of like just hey look i you know i'm me i can i can i can be in these rooms i can hang in this how did how did that come about was that something that you've always had because you know it was just instilled in you or is that something you've had to work towards because it really is a you know certain cats walk in the room and and i I joke with people i'll be like yo the air moved like the air shifted you you have that appreciate you know you have that ability and i'm interested to know for people that um are unfamiliar like yeah. is that because they can hear you talk they know you're talking with authority but it's like incompetence is it something you've always had or is it something that you had to, to build up that's an excellent it's an excellent question and and you know it's something i would like to say that i'm, I'm still working to develop because you know it's something that that you have to kind of infuse or speak into to what you're doing because that's the first the first step of doing anything is believing that you can do it but but i will say when i finally made up my mind that's why that's why i make the distinction of saying this wasn't something that you know, from the moment I first sold cars, it was just a straight line to going public. It was not that at all. Mm. When I was 31 years old, fed up with people telling me what I should do and then me listening to what they say, fed up with people, you know, uh, telling me another path, trying to trying to co-opt my, my dream and tell me how I should do it, given the fact that I have an education. You shouldn't go sell cars. You should do it like this. You should do it like that. When I finally decided that, you know what, when I look in the mirror, the only face that looks back is mine. Then I did get imbued with a different level of confidence that said, I don't care. Like it, it had to break through it, man, where it's like, you know, when I moved to town, I had a little one one room studio down on Main Street, <laughs> down in the bottom. And I had to get to the mindset where it's like, you know what, if you come to my place, this is what it is. Like, you know, what I mean, like that means when my friends from business school come through, like you got to understand, like if we're going to have more than one round of beers, you're going to have to pay or we got to go back you know, <laughs> and get a 12 pack and take back to my place. Like. This is the choice that I've made. I have to live in it, like for real, live in it. And when you do that, you actually do get free to, to like just feel, feel free to be yourself. But it took me a long time to get there, man. I, I mean, I, I carried a lot of shame about a lot of things. Like, you know, when I was in private school and, you know, the other kids had nice cars because their parents were car dealers or they had nice things like, well, what about me? You know, when, you know, it was just I had a, I came from a from a single family home. You know, there, there was a lot of judgment around that, you know, like. Where's your father? Where's this? Right. Like there's a lot of reasons to be closed off. So when you kind of have to decide that I have to inhabit this space and I am who I am, I can't change it. Then it is a pretty powerful revelation. It took me a while to get to that point. And like I said, I I think I'm still developing that now. Like when you say author, for example, right? Like that, I am an author now. Like I have to. (laughs) Right. Like that's, that's, that's gotta be part of my identity, but I think it's, I think it's an evolution. Would you say, uh, now looking back on it to where you are now, did you say you had a, a chip 
if you will, like a chip that you had to prove something to someone as you were going through these stages or no? I did in the beginning, man. But like, I'll be honest, like I, I've had a couple of experiences where I was able to go back and see the people that, that I had the biggest chips for, yeah, yeah, yeah. the ones that I couldn't wait to shove it in their face. And they didn't even remember or care. <laughs> and I'm glad that that happened early because it was a good reminder yeah. that it shouldn't be about that. <laughs> you know? You know what? It's interesting because there's a couple times when you're telling these stories, it makes me think of, of uh, things that have happened to me as well. And so the interesting thing for me now, and I, I laugh about it, but so like I was telling you, uh, after high school, I went to the service. I went to the service right away. And so that put me immediately four, four and a half years, five years behind <laughs> in my mind now, right. behind my, my friends that I went to high school with and some of my closest friends. Because they were either getting their degrees, going to grad school, starting their jobs. And I hadn't gotten that. I hadn't gotten that paper yet. Right. So meanwhile, it's really funny because I'm I've been fortunate. And I was working jobs that they would be like, oh, you're working for so and so and doing this and doing that. There was always this thing in the back of my mind. That's like, yo, I'm all I'm already behind mm -hmm. these cats because I, you know, I, I didn't get my degree yet. I got a degree, you know, four years later. So that's one step that gets you kind of closer. By this time, and it's different measuring sticks, right? So by this time, say you got your degree and you got your job per se, then it was like, oh, they've gotten married. They're starting families. You know right, what I mean? Right. It took me longer to, to get yeah. married and have a child. Like, and yeah. so it was really funny because it, I, I never really, when we were talking about the chip, I, I never felt like, I've always felt like I was always playing catch up, mm. right? Even to this day, I joke around my wife. My wife has two degrees because mm. she, she went to Howard Law School. Shout out to HU. Um, and I'm like, I joke around her like, yo, I only got one degree. Mm. Like I'd be telling <laughs> folks all, like, I kid you not, my like two years ago now, was it last year? Might've been, no, it was 2020. So the last commencement that they, they did for the school of social work at VCU, yeah. what that we had audience. So it was just 2019, June, 2019, something like that. Um, no, it's slight flex, but people know this. Oh, I remember. I, said, I, gave, I gave the commencement. Yeah. To folks that were getting their, you know, undergrad, but the other folks that were getting their masters and doctorates. Right. And I'm like, on, like, I got one degree. Right. Like, I feel right. like, yo, I need yeah. to go back and get what y'all got. Like, I was joking <laughs> around with my with my people, like, yo, I'm going to get an honorary. What's going to happen? And it's one of those things, though, that it, it's always, it, it's interesting because there's these certain steps that people reach. Mm -hmm. And I know there's been moments for you, and you read some of these moments in the book. Um, but it's like, you get to a spot and you're like, Yo, this is it. Like, this is like this is the playing field. I like I can play here. Right. <laughs> like I can I can do this. Right. I can do like this is where we're at. So yeah. I, once I once I realized like you get in certain rooms and you realize like, yo, this is equivalent to like you know the NBA or Major League Baseball, and this is what like this is what they're doing. So I was like, all right, like so I always felt as it took me a while to get there too, but I've always felt like at the stuff that. I'm supposed to be doing it. I can do. It took me a while to be like, yo, I can, I can play. Once I realized that, then the confidence comes later. But you know, that's such a powerful sentiment because both, both of these are rooted in the idea that there's a, there's a certain person who's supposed to be at that place, whether on that stage in that seat. In right. that room. And it's like, you're, you're, the whole thing is like, when you don't feel like you're that person, then it's like, you got to flex this way or that way versus just like, 
I'm in the room, like whatever, like, you know, like no, just completely abandoning the idea of what should be is like, this is what is <laughs> like, I'm what you got. <laughs> so right, so right, bring right. that stuff. And, and you're right. It takes a long time to get there, but once you are there, um, that's a very freeing thing to, and, and, and I'm, for me, it's like, I just, I don't want to let that, that freedom go. And I, you know, we, we talk about this, you know, since we're talking real, like I share with you when I joined mission lane, you know, here I am in the C-suite of a FinTech, uh, having never worked in finance, having never say, worked. People in- don't know what fintech is. I don't even. I like <laughs> you say that so naturally. I had to ask, like, yo, what is that? Yeah. I'm glad like, you financial tech tech. Mission Lane. Mission Lane is a credit card issuer. So think about okay. a credit card company. You know, right. Think Capital One, and think if 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 Capital One announced that, hey, we just brought on as our chief of strategy this dude from Carmax. <laughs> You'd be like, what? Like he doesn't. You know. Right. And, and, but and it's like, but it's the same thing where it's like, you know what? Whatever I'm gonna bring, I'm gonna bring, right? Like this, this is it. Like th- there's no second guessing. I'm in. So this is whatever I'm bringing, I'm bring. And I think that that's just got to be the mentality in every room. It's like by definition, if you're in the room, then you you should be there. That's it, right? So some folks. <laughs> <laughs> I've been in I've been in plenty of rooms though now that I'm like, yo, how did you get in this room? Like, what is happening? <laughs> Is this really, this is what we're doing? Like, this is, this is the presentation that comes out of this? That makes me feel like, you know. All right, all right. We want to get to a point. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the Cheats Movement Podcast, a very special conversation with my friend Aaron Montgomery, who is uh, an amazing, an amazing entrepreneur. But as we just mentioned, we have to add author to the list of achievements he has he's had. He has published his first book. It is called Suspend Your Disbelief. Tell me a little bit about why you wanted to write this book, what you wanted to get across in writing this book, and how the process, like what did you discover in the process of writing this book? Uh, th- those, are, those are great questions. I, I, the thing that was burning to me to write this book was, was one, when, when, COVID, when COVID hit, I felt so separated from everybody. You know, there were no more speaking events. There was no, everything just kind of shut down to a grinding halt. And I just had it in my mind, you know, that I really wanted to, to, to finally use that opportunity to really find a way to connect with people beyond the ones that I had already connected with. And, and specifically with, with, with younger people, because the conversation that we just had, right? Like that's powerful. I would want every young person to know that. Like if you haven't figured out how to get that chip off your shoulder, if you haven't gotten confident being in a room yet, you will be just focus on it. But, but they're not all here right now. And, 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 and uh, although lots of people will hear this podcast, not everyone will. And it's like, how do you know? It's like, but you, you're building an amplifier so that more and more people can hear that message and that's powerful. So I started thinking about that and thinking about the things that I wish that I had known and thinking about the, the people that I would most want to, to know these things. And it said, here's an opportunity just to just gather some thoughts and share them in the form of a book. And what I learned through the process to answer your, your question is that, you know, the idea of what makes a book or, you know, what's the right story or, you know, that you have to have some uh, some meta theme that's you know this is the thing this this book is about how to do this or how to do that or it's a cookbook or it's a leadership book or a sales book it all fell to the wayside when I just decided that this is the audience this this is this is it this is a book that I want to be helpful for you this is this is my this is my give to a group saying that if you don't have somebody who can give you advice if you don't have or if you if you have people which you wish there was something else that you had or 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 you just or you just want to have um, you know, or you just want to have, or you just like gathering uh, advice or, or wisdom or just have, or making better decisions. Like 
give them something else that can be used as a tool. And that was it. That was my sole motivation. It was like, if this could be useful, if of, of the several dozen stories, if there were just one or two that were impactful, then mission accomplished. And, and that was the main driving force throughout the entire process, which is why when I finally finished it, I said, I want to give away as many as I can. So I structured the program as a buy one, give one, specifically to say that I'm so sincere and just wanting to get this knowledge out there. I'm so sincere that even if only one or two stories of, of the several dozen is helpful, that I want to just give them away to as many folks as I can. So, uh, so that was the idea. That was the swing thought throughout the entire process. But, um, but what the thing I learned most about myself is that, uh, you know, when, when I'm really compelled to do something, uh, when I, and something really, really lights up, then, then, then I'll get it done. And oftentimes, I, you know, I'll beat myself up for not being as productive as I'd like or not getting something done. It's like, maybe you just haven't figured out what will really turn you on about this. I didn't want to write a book to be a bestseller. I didn't want that wasn't motivating to me. I didn't want to write a book just to say that I did it. But this idea of really sharing uh, knowledge and helping somebody close the gap uh, for, for younger people, that fired me up. I, I mean, I, I can't wait to write another one now. I'm, I'm, I'm stoked about this. Now, there's the, the way the book is written is extremely interesting to me. And it's actually, uh, what's the word? I actually like it. It's, it's favorable, I think, to the reader. Because what you've done in this book, and you explain it in the beginning of the book about um, your love for fables and kind of short stories and trying to, to discover as, as many of those as a young person as possible. You write chapter by chapter. Now, the book, if you read it all in a row, it does flow together. But it, it flows together in a way in which you can actually pick up any chapter you want based off of how you're feeling that day. Say, hey, I might need to hear this type of story. Thumb through. And, and each story is about two to three pages, right? Each chapter, each uh, kind of little antidote is about two to three pages. And you can really cherry pick the book in, in some ways. How did you get to that kind of concept as opposed to writing a book that was like, First, I was in high school. Now I'm at the business school. Now I'm did car lots. You know what I mean? You know, when I, when I, the, the way I landed on that is that that's how I think. Like, that's how I, that's how I, that's literally how I interpret the world. Like, when I recall our conversation later, I'm not going to recall it linearly in terms of this is what we talked about at, at minute three and this is what we talked about minute nine. I'm going to remember things like you sharing that story about, because I can picture that. I remember, I saw the pictures like you in front on the stage or for this vast group of thousands of people. And I, now I know what you were thinking there. And I know how you, you came up to that process. And I can tie that together with the conversation you had with your wife. And like, there's a theme there that I can encapsulate in a story and pull it, pull apart a moral. Like I'll, I'll share that in a talk. Like that's a real thing, but it hits me in a different way than just a chronological retelling. So like, I felt like if I could find a way to do this, if I got the stories right, if I got, if I got, if I got the right takeaway, if I was able to present it in a compelling way, then I wanted that to be the exact way that people would read it. Like I could pull out this piece. I could read one before I go to bed. I could share. I could just cut out one and share it with the kids somewhere else, whether I give them the whole book. That's exactly what I was aiming for. When did you realize, given the nature of the book and the, and the way that it's structured, when did you realize that it was done? Like, when did you realize that was enough <laughs> stories to make a full book? You know, I, I didn't. I, I had this really strong bias for action that I really wanted to do, like I say, I, I felt this during COVID. I really wanted to get something out there. I kind of just cloistered myself in the basement, started writing furiously, editing furiously, assembling a team to help me with the copy editing and the proofing and the book design and everything like that. I really wanted to work hard at it. And then I got to this point where I said, 
I feel like it's close. And I, I've assembled a focus group of friends and family and sent it to them and said, you know, give me your feedback. And they gave me their feedback. They were, they were brutally honest and helpful. And, you know, actually we made some cuts, we made some ads, but then I got to this point about August or September where I said it, that extra 10% could take me all the way through the next year. And I'll have missed this window where people are now, I mean, we're all locked in our houses, trying to avoid getting sick. Like there's a window right now where I can share this thing or I could spend all my time trying to trying to make it perfect. And, and if I were to write another story, that would be the next one I would add is that, you know, perfect is the enemy of good. Like you need to know when you'll never be done. So like, you know, jump right in. And, and that was that was a mantra for me. So, so yeah, I didn't, I didn't think it was done, but I did feel like it was something I'd be proud of. And, uh, and that was enough, right? It's like, now, I'd be proud of this. Now you, we've established that you're a very astute businessman. <laughs> releasing a book in the middle of a pandemic right again there's there's pros and cons maybe people are at home able to consume the book right, right. they can buy it online and and get it but one thing you can't do very much is go on the road and talk about the book and sell the book i mean right. it's a, just a different climate to do those things did any of that stuff in regards to is covid going to affect how i want to market this book and get it out the Given my goal and that I just wanted to put this in as many hands as I could, knowing that if, the, if nobody bought the book, then I, I'd ship them. I'd find a way to get them out because I, I was just so I was so on fire for that idea. If I had to just call up the high schools and, and, and you know, community college and tech schools myself, I would have just done it. Um, so th- to me, there was no downside. The only downside would have been missing the window where you have people's attention, because what, what mattered to me and the reason I even offered a book for sale at all is because I want people like you consigned in is with me saying like, I see this, bro. Like, I want to be a part of this community. I want people to know that they can reach out to me too. Like I'm a part of this. And to the hundreds of other people that have signed up and said, yeah, people that have bought, you know, five, 10, 20, 50 copies in some cases saying like, yes, I want my community to see me supporting them through this. That was what I wanted to have. And I felt like there was a window for that, um, you know, during this time, just given everything that, that's gone on in the last year, not just COVID, but just the, the broader climate, generally speaking, that there was just space for somebody to say like, Hey, if somebody's coming in trying to give something away um, to be helpful, I got space for that right now and I want to be supportive. And that was actually the most rewarding part is the, the sense of community and support and being able to thank everybody individually for being a part of this early wave has just been huge. So, so yeah, I, w- I wouldn't have traded that for, for anything, even though, yeah, going to a book signing and having speaking events where you can sell a bunch of clients would have been Maybe maybe better financially, but uh, but personally, uh, well, this, well this clear, is- clearly you don't have time now. You started a new gig. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you started a new gig, so you don't have time. Right. Uh, I, I'm gonna finish up on a couple of things, Aaron, uh, and I'm really really appreciative of your time. The one thing I do want to mention because I think it's noteworthy is that uh, you from ground up started Carlots um, mm-hmm. with with two partners of yours and just recently you alluded to it but Mm -hmm. now you you've you know stepped stepped away from that i know you've already for people that don't know aaron Aaron and i have talked about this uh he he is just wants to do something different but he's i mean that's still family that's family since day one it will always be family to you you made that very clear and something that you're still on the board of or was on the board of and tracking very closely yeah i I say all that because carlotts just went public mm-hmm. not too long ago. Yeah. And I remember texting you something to the extent of which I do, because I'm very, uh, what's the word? Ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> like the, the price goes up again. <laughs> like Aaron Montgomery, like 
the whole thing about Aaron, the, the price is going up. Carlos has gone public. But really quickly, tell me about the feeling. Like a, a lot of people will never experience, you know, starting a company and then taking that company public. And yeah. just, just that whole experience of what did you feel like when Carlos went public? Um, you know, honestly, it was it was surreal. It, it still is surreal. I mean, you know, when you follow the ticker and you see, you know, you just see this thing. I remember when we when Nasdaq uh, had the company ring the bell and, you know, just seeing these teammates that, you, you know, you, you brought along now, you know, occupying different positions and, you know, seeing the company's logo, uh, you know, on, on the buildings in Times Square. It, I mean, it, it, it's surreal. But for me um, personally, it's just it's gratifying to be able to see something that was literally a sheet of paper 11 years ago when we started working. I mean, as I said, we, we were three guys, we worked from an office building. Um, you know, we had to secure a website, find a building, you know, make logos. Like literally we're conceiving of a thing and just bringing it into the world and watching that thing now grow and grow and grow and just be so far beyond the three of us that now it's like its own thing, literally. It's its own thing, it's a company, it's its whole, it's an entity. Um, that's, that's humbling, that's like, wow. Like, and, and the only takeaway for me throughout this entire process has been when you think about what you're capable of or what you can see happen, you being the collective, you, us as human beings, it's like, wouldn't you just aim higher? Wouldn't you aim for everything that you wanted to do if you knew that that was a possibility? Like if you, if you knew at the beginning that this could have gone public, right? Like what else would you do? <laughs> like, no, like, you know, like, you know, and that's where my mind has been, you know, yeah. I, um, uh, for, for a long time. It's like, you know, man, are, are there other areas of your life where you've just decided that that outcome is just too outlandish. It would never happen. It happens to one in a million people and you're not it versus just saying, why not? A lot of crazy things have happened so far. <laughs> you know, let's just sure. see. <laughs> you know? This brings me to another uh, segue that I know you're going to laugh about, but, and it's something that we actually, both of us have in common. Um, and I think we know, we probably never really acknowledged it. Uh, but we both are by far the third coolest people in our house, right? Like by far yeah. anybody, anybody that has met your wife and your daughter know that you are by far the, the third coolest person. Anyone that's yeah. met my wife and my son know that I'm the third coolest person. Um, I, I, I love your family. Uh, it, it is great to, to, to see how you guys operate. Um, Tell me a little bit about kind of the stage that you are in. You have a, a little girl that's beautiful. Uh, you have a wife that's much cooler and, and awesomer than you are. No, like it's, I'm not even speaking out of school. Not even. Uh, we we both we both uh, <laughs> we both done well. Fair that's enough, right. and that's it. Just tell me a little bit about how you kind of navigated uh, 2020 and navigated writing this book, and you know, Carlotte's going public, and you taking a new job at Mission Lane. All of this with, like I said, an amazing family that you have. Uh, and you know this, as, as you said, as a fellow member of the Lucky Bastards Club, um, the importance of having the partner, uh, you know, in, in, in all ways. I mean, Namisha is like literally from, from day one, like I couldn't overuse this phrase ride or die. Like, like that's literally that's the only relationship we've ever had. It's like you take this one, I'll get this one. OK, you got this while I do this. Oh, you can't. Then I'll do both. Like that's been our entire relationship for 11 years. Like, it's just, you just, you hobble along with one when they're better, you run along and we both run the same space and then they hobble along with you. Like we've had nothing but those moments where like each time we level up, it's like, you know, we just were able to trust each other more. We we're able to do more. 
And then we're able to focus more outward. So I'd say in this phase where we are, and this is why my wife was so supportive of this product, this project being, being the book and with Mission Lane is that, you know, we feel like we're at a point in our lives where we've just been blessed tremendously. We want to focus more on the community and ways to get back collectively. Like that's something that's important to both of us and has always been important to both of us. So that's our mindset now. And one of the things that's exciting about the work I'm doing at Mission Lane is that I'm, I'm able to do both at the same time. The book out is obviously a big part of that. Our collective community service, obviously Namisha's work is a big, that's a big part of the, the component, right? It's like, it's so grounded in service as a consultant. Sure. So that's a big part of how we're thinking about it. And, and mostly all that to say, you know, being a, a good role model for my daughter so that all of her recollections aren't, you know, my parents worked a lot and I had nice things, but like that she saw, that's why I was, we were pumped that you guys had come to my 40th birthday. You remember we gave books away um, and, and we talked to her about that. Like, you know, yeah. a, lot of, a lot of, every kid doesn't have as many books as you. That's why we're doing this. And I'm, I'm glad that she was able to see our friends in the community come and support us. I and want so, her to have memories like and that. And for people that don't know, this is before you wrote your book. So we, he actually collected books at his <laughs> birthday party to give to other folks. So right. we had like the gifts we had to give, we didn't have to, but the gifts we were loving and willing to give were <laughs> yeah. book donations, but that's always been a part of your DNA. That's, that's always deal. been a part of and, it. And, and as we're blessed more now, it's like, okay, how can we take that to another level? How can we do more and, and really challenge ourselves to do that? So it's great when you, when you're just so like-minded and like, you know, so we've been together 11 years now. So these conversations, they're, they're not, they're just like, okay, remember the thing we said we we're going to do, let's do it. And that's all we're talking about. It's just at every step. So uh, it's awesome. And, and and obviously, and I know you feel this because you said this from the moment you, you first became a father, but like it it, it just gives you a different level of, of purpose. Uh, not that, you know, you can't have a lot of purpose without kids, but 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 you know what I mean. It's like there's just sure. a, there's no, no, a, there's no, no. Absolutely. A, OK, like this one's counting on me. Um, there's just a different <laughs> level of focus. I, I tell this story um, and I've told it to you, uh, but I tell this story to folks because I met your wife uh, before I met you. Yeah. And when I met your wife, it was cool. She's super cool. And, but she always was like, hey, you should meet Aaron. You would really <laughs> like Aaron. To the point where it was like, I was telling Ari, at the point I was like, yo, it's kind of weird. Like every time, every time I see him, she's like, she's like, you should meet my husband. I'm like, all right, all right. You know what I mean? Like you felt like it was like you're trying way too hard at one point. And then we met you. And it was like, yo, I totally get it. Like, yo, this is, this is, this dude is like, it's awesome. We have a lot in common. But it was like, I remember laughing around and being like, yo, what is up with this? Because I think the first, probably we had done some TEDx stuff. And the first like several times I met uh, your wife, it was through kind of TEDx and the things that uh, Namisha was doing. But I had never met you. You were always running and traveling and so forth. And at one point you're like, you know, all right, man. But it, no, she's, she was exactly right. And, it, and it's awesome uh, getting to know you. Awesome hearing your story. Very proud of what you're doing, uh, what you've always done, but what you're doing, especially now. The book is Suspend Your Disbelief. Um, it is available everywhere, but it's available. Where, where did they get? Where do people get? www.aaronmontgomery.com to support the buy one, get one. Uh, okay. So go to his website. To support the buy one, get one, I'll flash it up on the screen and I'll put it in uh, the YouTube uh, comments. So make sure you check that out, buy the book. Before we get out of here, the last thing I will say, and I don't know how, like, because the other thing that's uh, hilarious about kind of the stuff that you do, you're doing all of these things. And then I'll check something, whether it's online or something like that, or I'll text you and you'll be like, oh, I'll hit you back. I'm doing X. So <laughs> the, you know where I'm going with this. Somehow, 
I'm like, I don't know if I hit you or I looked online and the brother was like, yo, I've got my pilot's license. So I'm flying planes now. And at that point I was like, that, oh my God. <laughs> like like it, it doesn't help that he's going, like he's going public. He's writing books. He's got a wonderful family. The dude is flying planes. And Bro, the first I thing I, though. no, the first thing I thought was brothers don't fly planes like that. <laughs> That's true. That's, that was well part of the so, reason to do it. <laughs> tell me, tell me about, tell me about flying planes. How did you was, get into flying planes? It was largely functional. It was because of what you what you just said. Like you, you try to catch up with, with, you know, I was always gone. I was always on the road. You can't fly directly from Richmond to a lot of places. So, you know, a trip to San Antonio to check on, on our store could be a half a day of travel, just stuck in airports, you know. So I wanted to learn to fly largely as a, as a function of having to be on the road a lot. But but once I got up there. A, I really liked it. And B, like I, I dug it. It was like, this is a lot of fun. And B, like there is a small but growing and very ardent group of black pilots that are just like, we need more black pilots. We need more black aviators. And we have a very proud history, as you know, you know, going all the way back to, uh, uh, to you know, to, to, to flying bombership uh, bombers and, and just, you know, what, what, what that means. But like, it's, you know, it's, 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 uh, you know, we've lost some of that over time. So it's like, here's an opportunity to get back into it just from the student aspect. But but yeah, so utility aspect, the, the student and, and the historical aspect. And frankly, now it's, it's it's the convenience. I mean, it's like, you know, I can be- So you can get on a plane and be like, yo, I'm going to fly to Detroit today. Yeah. Like you can pull that off. Yeah, that's why I told you I was in New Jersey this past weekend. That's how I got there. You know, it's like we pop up in there. Um <laughs> you, you you realize this is not normal. Like people are like, yo, I gotta go to Detroit. Let me call up my like yeah. plane service no, type thing. The deal. That's and I'm flying the plane. And and it was like that would you know these are trips. I remember during COVID, you know, like to bring bring my family. Like, this this is like as hard. Yo, as and your do. wife rides with you? Yeah, she will. She'll ride. She'll ride when I have it. I'll have I have to have a pilot for, for the time she rides. Like I, that's a deal that we made since since Kobe passed. Because my, my wife would be like, "Look, no, no, yeah, that, that's a deal that we made. It's like you know, like not not that they care less about me, but I'm allowed what? to go. <laughs> but like, she'd be like, "Look, <laughs> she'd be like, look, I love you to death, but you're not flying my plane." Yeah, no. How long, how long does it take for you to 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 fly? How long is aviation courses? I, well, you can do them in a, in a month if you if you go hard at it. I mean, it's just hours, right? So it's like, you know, not I'm not confident in this at all. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. that's great. It's all that's about focus. But, uh, but yeah. Oh, man. For you. Well, we'll look. Look time. You'll enjoy it. No, look. <laughs> I'm not trying. Look, I'm not trying. I, uh, I'll tell you that. I'll tell the story offline. Because right now, it's not about, it's not about that. I'm with entrepreneur, uh, author, pilot, superhuman, Aaron Montgomery. The book is Suspend Your Disbelief. Brother, it's always a pleasure to spend time with you. Uh, it, it is an honor, and uh, I'm excited to see, you know, where you go from here and, and, and definitely looking forward to sharing these stories with Cam uh, and the rest of my family. So thank you, Aaron. I really appreciate it, bro. Thank you, Cheats. I appreciate this opportunity, brother. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a special conversation of the Cheats Movement podcast. You can listen to all the previous Cheats Movement podcasts uh, anywhere that podcasts are available. Please, please follow uh, the Cheats Movement, and you can look at both of our pages and check out our uh, IG and social media pages. So until next time, we see you.